Well, uh, we're in this series and uh, throughout the last couple of weeks have given you the opportunity to ask questions along the way. Uh, that continues. We have one more week next week of this series. And so as we're going through the message today, if you have questions, if you think of something that you would like me to address, be happy to do that. Today we're going to address a question that came last week uh, that says this, I struggled to get a satisfactory answer beyond because he died for you, your sins. Uh, I felt compelled to ask you to address this concept for those intellectual Christians who have taken the first leap of faith, but are struggling to grow deep while grappling with the concept of the importance of a relationship with Christ. Given that I accept the truth of Christ, why must I praise and worship him? If he came to give me a, uh, if he came to give me a relationship with God, explain to me the importance of developing a relationship with Christ to get through to God. Why can't I just go straight to God? Uh, so I'll answer that question as quickly as possible. There's a lot there, uh, and I will not probably be able to tackle all of what's there in depth. But I just want to say this, that the reason why we worship Jesus is because of what he did on the cross for us. One of the greatest sacrifices, uh, the greatest, not one of, the greatest sacrifice ever for us. And that is deserving of our worship, deserving of our praise. And the reason why we go through Jesus to God, the Father, is really simply uh, based upon what took place at the cross. So yes, I know it's such a flippant answer to say because he died for you, but the reality is, is the reason we worship him is because he died for you. And because when he died for you, uh, we are reminded that prior to the crucifixion of Jesus, there was no access to God the Father. None. In fact, the only way you could get into the, or the only way to the presence of God or, uh, or to get to God was through a mediator, through a high priest who then could go to God and make a sacrifice on your behalf. Well, when Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice, that veil, that separation was torn in two. And so now we can enter into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're also taught in scripture about the obedience of praying in the name of Jesus. That when we pray, we pray in the name of Jesus. We, uh, when we lay hands on someone and ask for healing, we ask for healing in the name of Jesus. Because Jesus now is the one that goes on our behalf to the Father. And I know that's hard for us to comprehend. We've talked about the Trinity a little bit. But uh, at the end of the day, Jesus is actually petitioning the Father on our behalf behalf in the case of our prayers. And so uh, we do that out of obedience. We worship him because he's worthy to be worshiped just as the father is. That's why we sing songs to Jesus at times. There's times where we're in our lyrics, we're singing to God, the father. Of course, Jesus is God, but again, you know, we get back into the Trinity conversation. So all that to say is uh, the reason we worship him is because he died for your sins. And I know that's a hard, uh, simple, easy answer, but uh, it is the truth and the reality of why we worship Jesus. All right, let's jump right in. Uh, have you ever noticed that there are commercials that just drive you nuts, that are completely annoying? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't really want to get in a car wreck, but if I get in a car wreck, uh, I'm not calling the Davis Law Firm. I'm just not. You know what I'm talking about. You're laughing because you know that if you get in a wreck, you're supposed to call 444-4444, right? Or whatever it is. It's a lot of fours because the fours will be with you. All these stupid commercials and it's just like, I will, even if they were the best law firm in the city, I will not go to them. I, re I reject those commercials. I shut them off. I turn them down. They've even had Super Bowl commercials. I mean, they must be doing pretty well. Uh, and there's probably somebody listening online or in the room that works for them, and I'm probably going to be in trouble. But I just, it's annoying to me. It's really annoying. And, and there's just commercials that exist that are just, just dumb. Uh, there's, uh, I'm not the only one, so... Um, Years ago, there was a string, for three years, there was a string of AT&T commercials that had a certain actress uh, that was 
uh, kind of became known as the AT&T girl. And, uh, and the problem was is that it de- they determined eventually that she wasn't a great fit for them because women didn't like her. She was a little too pretty, a little too perky, and, and she came in onto the screen, and it was almost like immediate competition, and so women, like, rejected the AT&T commercials, and, and so they had to, like, let her go. I mean, she did fine, because she ended up on This Is Us and ended up in a Marvel TV series and all of that, but they didn't like her, and, and so because they didn't like her, because women didn't like her, they let her go, just... That's the problem, isn't it? That there are people that we just don't like. And there, and there are commercials that we just don't like and they, that can either turn us off or, or they can turn us on, which, which means Christianity has a challenge, doesn't it? Because there are a lot of walking, talking commercials out there that are either turning people on towards Christianity or turning them off. I'm talking about people who claim to be Christians, who are even outspoken about their faith, but they come across legalistic, hypocritical, judgmental, or intolerant. For some people, all of the above. So we're in this series on Christianity for people who are not Christians, and this is a big issue This is one of the biggest issues. In fact, you've probably experienced hypocritical, judgmental, intolerant, uh, uh, legalistic type people in your life. And yet you're you're still pressing in. But there is a whole world of people in your life circle who do not want anything to do with Christianity because of these kind of commercials that are out there. It's probably the number one thing that turns people off to the Christian faith. Kelly asked me earlier what it was that I'd be speaking on today, and she was preparing the worship set, and I said, well, I'm talking about legalism, uh, hypocrisy, judgmentalism, and intolerance. You got any songs for that? (laughs) And she said, yes, amazing grace. (laughs) So guess what we're singing at the end of the message today? (laughs) Amazing grace. Let's start with legalism Legalism is putting a bunch of do's and don'ts onto the people, onto people to follow in the name of God that God did not put on people. It's a religion of added rules and, and regulations. It's standards and these stipulations, these codes, and the, and the conduct that's contrived by someone who is determined to, to figure out who is spiritual and who's not. Or even who's spiritually acceptable and who's not. It's being asked, if not forced, to measure up in ways that can be binding, it can be brutal, it can be discouraging, it can be defeating, and it feels like a million miles away from anything authentic, anything life-changing, anything that's freeing, anything that, that exudes Jesus, it seems so far away from him. It's actually what caused the tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. In fact, uh, it was these, these people were known as the teachers of the law, these Pharisees, and they were very religious. They were considered to be the holiest people of the day, and this is what made them so holy. They took the Old Testament, and instead of reading it as this life-giving message, this amazing God-breathed, God-inspired, wonderful set of stories and instructions, instead... What they did was they figured out how to make it legalistic. And they calculated that it contained 248 commandments and 365 prohibitions. You guys are going to be in school today. So glad that, and for you watching online, just consider it's like Zoom. Uh, You're at Zoom school. So you've got the Old Testament here. You've got 200, what I say, 248 commandments. Is that right? And 365 prohibitions. Right? And so learning that these existed in Scripture, what they decided was it's going to be pretty difficult to adhere to all of those. And so as they looked through their legalistic lens, they wanted to make sure that they didn't break even one of those commandments or prohibitions. So they made rules. 
about the rules. And they made laws about the laws. In the end, they came up with 1,500 additions to help them keep the 248 and 365. It's called the Mishnah. So they put another circle around it and called it the Mishnah. Now, 1,500 that they just invented on their own to prevent a protective layer. All of the oral tradition was later gathered into the Mishnah. But even that wasn't enough. Like, okay, we've got the Mishnah, but now we need more rules around the rules that they made, around the rules in order to not break the rules that they had made about the scriptures. And these created another circle called the Gemara. So now you've got rules for rules for rules for the scriptures. So how did rules about rules play out for people like the Pharisees? They ended up calling this, by the way, the whole thing, the Talmud. How did this play out? What did this look like in the case of the religious people of their day? To avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, they refused to even say God's name, even in honor and respect in worship or in prayer. To avoid committing adultery, they would lower their heads whenever they passed a woman so that they wouldn't even, even look at her so as to not give in to lust. It's why the most holy of all were known as bleeding Pharisees because they were lowering their heads so much that they were walking into walls. The, 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 the marks on their forehead from walking into walls became kind of this religious spiritual badge of honor. To properly follow the command to rest on the Sabbath and not work, they decided that they needed to figure out how many steps you could take on those days without it becoming work. And for some reason, they came up with the number 50. That They calculated anything beyond 50 steps on the Sabbath is work. They also decided that on holy days, a person could not uh, or could eat but not cook. You could bandage a wound for a person, but you could not apply medicine. If you're a woman, you couldn't look in the mirror because you might see a gray hair. And if you see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it out. And plucking out a gray hair was considered work. And you couldn't work on the Sabbath. We know you don't pluck out gray hairs. You just color them. <laughs> so what did Jesus say about this? He was pretty direct. In Luke chapter 11, it says, And you experts in the law, this is what he says. He says, Woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. That was more of a slam than you realize. Woe to you. Jesus is throwing some, some pretty big shade the Pharisees way. And I'm probably too old to say shade. But like he's really laying it on thick to these guys. Because they know that that word woe uttered by a prophet was an admonition towards them. This is a prophet's word. When a prophet uttered a word of, uh, that was positive from God, they would use the word blessed. That's why in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the word blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. He uses those words or, or that word because it's something from God through the prophet to the people. When judgment was being uttered, a prophet began the word with the word woe. So we know exactly how Jesus felt about legalism. He woed it. He woed it. He hated it. He, he gave it the ultimate prophetic condemnation. And what was it about legalism that Jesus hated? And not only did it kill the heart and cripple people's spiritual life, but it made a mockery of it. See, because if it's all about legalism, then it's all about rules. It's all about just going through the hoops. You can, you can uh, treat your relationship with God or your spirituality or your, uh, your religion as a tax lawyer. Looking for, if you're a tax lawyer, no offense, but you can look for loopholes. You can look for technicalities. You can focus on the letter of the law, but never its spirit. 
but it was the spirit that Jesus was after. See, following Jesus is not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about your heart. It's about your, it's about your soul and about your spirit. So if you hate legalism, this doesn't mean that you're turned off to Christianity, much less Jesus. You're just turned off to legalists. So am I. So was Jesus. Here's what Jesus said was the real thing. In Matthew chapter 11, in the message paraphrase, it says, Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real test. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So are there legalistic people? Yeah, lots of them. Is legalism what comes with Jesus or what is denounced by Jesus? It's denounced. So when you see legalism, when you experience legalism, you can know that that's not authentic Christian faith. That's not it being fleshed out. So don't let that be an impediment to your Christian faith. So let's move on to judgmentalism. We all know the judgmental type, don't we? People who are prideful, act morally superior, find fault with everybody else. My guess is that everyone in this room, everyone watching online, has experienced some level of judgmentalism in their life. Have you ever had somebody come up to you and say, I've got the gift of discernment? Well, typically, they're just being judgy. <laughs> They're just judging you. I'm not saying that there's not discernment in the context, but typically when people say, I have the gift of discernment, they're just being judgy. The judgmental, ju judgmentalism is when people lack compassion, they lack understanding, and they lack grace towards other people's screw-ups. The judgmental seem more interested in condemning people than helping people. And if you've ever encountered this spirit, you have every right to be repulsed by it. It's terrible. It feels horrible. And more tragic is to find that it often comes from those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Right? But we're supposed to be grace people. That's who we are. We are grace people. We are followers of Jesus. And, and here's what grace is about. It's this incredible commodity that sees us for who we really are. Not just for our mistakes, not for our failures and our flaws. It's actually the dispenser of forgiveness. Grace is the spirit that restores those who have fallen. Grace is so amazing that we're going to sing about it. So it could be pretty confusing for people in our life circle when they experience sometimes the opposite of that. They experience that the, their experience is that the last place grace is found is within Christianity. Why does this happen? Well, some Jesus people are just not being very Jesus-y. Because <laughs> Jesus went out of his way to tell those who followed him. This is what he says in Matthew chapter 7. This is one of the greatest sermons ever, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye, when you can't see past the log in your own eye, hypocrite? First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus said, do not judge, period. That's God's job, not ours. Now, to be fair, some people will say, don't judge me. And what they really mean is, don't you dare say anything I do or say is wrong. That's not fair. That's not judging, right? There, there's got to be room. It, it, the issue is when it becomes a condemnation. We're not the Holy Spirit, and you should be grateful for that. But even the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn, he convicts. And so when we bring issues to people or we're trying to address things, even in our own children, and they're like, whoa, don't judge me, 
Ah, you can't always use that statement. The judgmental person that Jesus is talking about is someone who is a fault finder, who's negative, who's destructive towards other people. And when you encounter judgmentalism, it's not a reflection of Jesus or the life that he's called us to live. The real spirit of Jesus is truth, which should be in conjunction with grace. It should be coupled with grace. There's grace, but there's truth. Authentic Christian community is, is nothing but just a community of mess-ups. That's what this is. <laughs> Welcome. You are in a room, you are watching online, and you're in your home. You've got a home of mess-ups. We have a collection of mess-ups in this room. We are all fellow strugglers in this together. We have sins of pride, of greed, of pornography, of self-righteousness, of lying, stealing, adultery, and sensitivity to others. But here's the thing. Through the power of Christ, we have hope. We have hope in the transformational work that he's going to do in our life. We want to expose the areas of our life. We don't want to deny them. We don't want to rationalize them. But we want to do it in such a way that doesn't condemns but, but transforms people's lives. We want to discover and we want to go to God for forgiveness and become increasingly changed by him. It's messy. Make no mistake. It's easier if everybody just faked it because then we can just kind of go along with our cookie-cutter lives. But, but if we're an authentic Christian community, then we have to be willing to admit those faults that we have in our life. And that's messy, but it's beautiful. Judgmentalism is not from Jesus. It is denounced. And so when you see it, you know you're not seeing an authentic Christian faith. But it's no reason to reject the Christian faith because that's not a part of the Christian faith. It's not a part of Jesus. Well, let's just go to the lighter subject of hypocrisy. <laughs> hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which one's own behavior does not conform. One of my favorite books uh, growing up, I got it in high school, one of my favorite books was a book called Letters from Home. And the author of this book was a pastor, and he was writing these letters to his children, and he put it into the form of a book and, uh, and was supposed to be this encouragement to his kids. And I really uh, took to this book. I loved what he had to say, and one of my favorite chapters in the book was a chapter that was titled, Live as if There Are No Secrets. I want to read to you just a snippet from that chapter. It says, remember the other day when we talked about how some of your friends, this is the author speaking to his, his kids, when some of your friends are suffering because their parents are divorcing or, have made, or you have made embarrassing decisions. I don't think we need to live this way. I think every one of us can make decisions that will open doors of life and hope. And then he goes on later on, and he, after reading a passage of Scripture, he says, here's the basic idea of the Scripture. Everything in your life is public. There are no secrets. Everything you say, everything you do, every place you go, every thought you think is going to be made known by all. So if you want to do something that you have to keep secret, don't do it. It was super impactful for me. And it was really life transforming in me as I was growing in my faith and all of that. And so you can imagine my utter disappointment when it was discovered that the author, Ted Haggard, was writing that chapter as he was visiting inappropriate massage parlors. The sheer hypocrisy of it brought so much disappointment to me. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever been burned like that. I don't know if you've ever experienced that level of hypocrisy or if you've ever been disillusioned like I was, but it makes you want to question everything. But here's the thing is I didn't abandon my Christian faith over it. And though it wouldn't be the last time I experienced, I experienced that kind of, uh, or I haven't experienced that kind of disillusionment, sadly, it happens all the time. People are hypocritical. 
But I don't abandon my faith because of people. Because that's not Jesus. It's really the headline for everything that we're talking about is that with legalism and judgmentalism and hypocrisy, those things don't have anything to do with Jesus. Jesus wasn't being a hypocrite. He wasn't being judgmental. He, he wasn't being legalistic. Why would I reject Jesus because of what other human beings are doing? It doesn't have anything to do with truth or, or the validity or what a relationship with him could mean for my life. And this is what's really, really important for us to understand is if you see that, if, if you understand that, if you comprehend that that doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, then to reject him makes absolutely no sense. Jesus went on a war path against judgmentalism, against legalism and, and, and hypocrisy. In fact, he was, one that, he was probably the only one that started that war. Let me show you something that you've probably seen before, but may, may or may not know the story behind. It's a picture of a couple of masks. These were known as uh, comedy and tragedy in ancient Greece. They were actually all kinds of masks used back then because in ancient Greek theater, that's how they performed their dramas was with masks. Uh, they would either have a mask on their face or they would have a mask on a pole and they would speak from behind the mask uh, to say their lines so that it would reflect their character. And back then, actors were only male and so it uh, afforded them the opportunity to have female actors. And, uh, and so you know that the Greek word for one of those actors literally means behind the mask. And the Greek word was Hippocrates, which is where we get the word hypocrite. Jesus took hold of this word and he uses it in a way that no one had ever used it before. He borrowed it from theater and he applied it to the people who were spiritual actors. Here's some of his words in Matthew chapter 23. He says, everything they do is for show, hypocrites. For you are, are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. I don't know about you, but I don't want Jesus saying that about me. He goes on in verse 14 of the same chapter, hypocrites, you pretend to be holy with all your long and public prayers in the streets while you're evicting widows from their homes, hypocrites. You're like beautiful mausoleums full of dead men's bones and of foulness and corruption. You try to look like saintly men, but underneath those pious robes of, your, of, of yours are hearts besmirched with every sort of hypocrisy and sin. Ouch. So what many people cite as a reason for rejecting Christianity and Christ has nothing to do with the authentic Christian faith, much less Jesus. Let's be clear what hypocrisy isn't, though. Hypocrisy isn't when somebody fails your expectations of perfection, right? It isn't catching someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus in a sin and saying, you hypocrite. No, no, that's demanding perfection. If that is how you define hypocrisy, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm a hypocrite. And every one of us are. Because we all struggle, we all sin in some sort of capacity in our life. If you come and spend the day with me, you are going to be very, very disappointed. Especially if you're there in the morning before coffee. See, if, if there's a, a, an expectation of perfection from Christians, you're just not going to get that. We probably wouldn't even last an hour, in fact. Does that automatically make me a hypocrite? Just because I consistently fail at things that feel like I failed at for thousands of years or hours? Just because I screw up, just because I sin. If Christian means perfection, then we are all in trouble. And if you believe that, 
And I don't know where you're getting that from because it's not from the Bible. It's not from Jesus. Yet this idea runs rampant within the Christian world. That Christianity means perfection. So many times I've heard someone say, you know what, I don't want to say I'm a Christian. I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to get baptized and go public with my Christian faith because, and you can always anticipate the next words, because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And here's the thinking behind those statements, that, that somehow that I can't be a Christ follower because I can never attain perfection. And I've got good news for you. That's okay. It doesn't mean that you just stay where you're at. There should be a growth process that takes place. Last week, I addressed a question that said, how can God forgive me of the worst sins? He can forgive you of those worst sins, of the worst of sins, because he's expecting you don't do them anymore. That Jesus, when he's addressing this adulterous woman in the street, he, there's grace there, but he says, go and sin no more. There should be a level of grace there, but there's also truth. And the reality is, is if we believe as Christ followers, we expect people to be perfect, we will be disappointed every time. Since nobody wants to be a hypocrite, they think it's best to not associate themselves with Christians, with the church, or with Jesus. But that's as messed up as the real hypocrisy is. Because the truth is, is the opposite of hypocrisy is not perfection. The opposite of hypocrisy is spiritual authenticity. And when I fail, I admit that I fail. That when I fail, I ask God to forgive me from that failing. And whether or not I take it seriously enough to not just grab for the grace, but actually to begin to grow. And to ask him to, as we sang earlier, continue to press and crush in my life the things that he wants to remove, the things he wants to prune. Spiritual authenticity means I don't walk around talking about how strong I am in the particular area of my weakness. That would be hypocrisy. The Christian faith is unique and it's holding the idea that the first step forward in authentic spirituality is not having to have our act all together. And it's actually admitting that you don't. This means an authentic Christian life isn't marked by perfection, but marked by transformation. This is how C.S. Lewis puts it. been using him a lot in this series. He said, you may observe that a particular Christian woman, you know, let's call her Mary, has uh, a much more difficult time of keeping away from gossip than a non-Christian woman that, you know, let's call her Betty. So you see, Mary, the gossiping Christian, and Betty, the non-gossiping non-Christian, it naturally makes you think Mary is a hypocrite, or that maybe the whole Christian life thing doesn't have a lot of potency, but that misses the whole process of transformation. Here's the real issue. What would Mary be like if she wasn't in a relationship with Christ, and what would Betty be like if she was? You think gossip is Mary's problem? You should have met Mary before she became a Christian. It's a step up. We're all works in progress. We are all people who have different areas of strengths and weaknesses, and God meets us in every one of those. He begins there, and he begins to do a work in our life. He begins the pruning, and he begins to walk with us in such a way that we are growing in that. Spiritual authenticity is admitting that you are one step away from being the people that you've maybe judged. I'll give you an example of this. When I first moved here, uh, there was some judgmentalism that came into my heart about uh, a specific uh, ministry leader of a church who I had discovered years and years and years back had cheated on his wife had an adulterous affair and ended up marrying the person he had uh, committed adultery with. And then uh, subsequently ended up uh, planning a different church and, and the church is thriving and flourishing. And, and when I got here, um, things were a little challenging uh, in the first eight months, about 80% left. And, 
And I found myself crying out to God saying, God, how in the world could you bless and and allow that ministry to thrive and have all those people and some of the people that left went to that place? And I'm like, I haven't committed adultery. Why am I being punished? Why would they thrive and not me? And you know what God said to me? Why in the world would I use you, Ryan, to lead a church in this place, in your condition, with all that I know about what you've done in your life, why would I let you do it? And so from that point on, I've just always operated because I I have in the past been judgmental towards especially pastors who have failed morally from the platform in their pulpit, and I've always operated. I'm just one decision away from being that guy. I'm one decision that leads to another decision that leads to another decision. And if you walk in this life knowing and admitting that you could fail just like those guys fail, that's a step towards spiritual authenticity. But if you walk around saying, I'll never do that, you better watch your back. Let's turn to tolerance. At this point, you might be thinking, well, okay, I get legalism, judgmentalism, and hypocrisy, all of those things that always kind of bug me. But I'm really glad that Jesus wasn't for those things either. But I do have one last people issue, one last area where it seems like Christians are acting unchristianly, and it makes me not to want to have anything to do with them. And it's about all this lack of tolerance and lack of acceptance. And I'll just kind of not beat around the bush because I get this question a lot. Are you accepting of different lifestyles? Because rumor has it that you are not. I've been asked the question a lot whether or not we are accepting of those who live their life in different lifestyles in the LGBTQ community. And my response to them is yes, of course. Now before you get up and leave and are upset or offended by what I just said, hear me out. Why wouldn't we be? There's no doubt that There have been Christians who both in the past and even in the present have been unloving and ungracious, even hateful towards members of that community. And that's their sin. But this is what I do know is that God cares deeply about every human being on this planet. He loves them and he wants to be in relationship with them, period. Which means that every single person is welcome at an authentically Christian church. They'll be accepted, they'll be loved, they'll be cared for. But here's where it gets a little tricky. And it's tricky not just in this subject matter, it's tricky across the board in different kinds of lifestyles. If you want to make acceptance also mean affirmation, then that's a separate conversation which I'm happy to have, I'm happy to have those and have had those conversations, but it's a separate conversation. Regardless of whether what I'm about to tell you plays out to everyone's liking, we will always accept love and care for everyone that walks through our doors. The invitation for us, for every one of us, is to figure out where do we stand with Jesus? And how he applies to our life. Do we believe that he is who he said he is? Because after we figure that out, then we'll have two choices. Do we believe that he is who he said he was? If we can figure that out, we'll have two choices. One, we'll reject him, which means making all other questions, uh, that makes all other questions irrelevant. The conversation is dead on arrival. We're not even talking about it because you've rejected the entire Christian faith. If you've rejected Jesus, we don't have anything to talk about. Or you'll accept him and then you begin exploring what he had to say about all kinds of things in your life. That's part of the the beauty and the adventure of followership with Jesus, including the choices that we make about sex and his vision for full sexual fulfillment in our life and what's ideal for our life. 
It's having a biblical sexual ethic, but don't get this out of order because there's no point in having the conversation until you settle where you stand with Jesus. You can think of it this way. Let's say you're drawn to the idea of getting fit and losing weight. This is why I'm wearing a, this in the middle of the summer or what feels like the summer today. You hear about a fitness program that involves a high-protein, low-carb diet, coupled with combination of cardio, strength-resistance training, and you instantly just have this visceral reaction to the exclusion of carbs because it seems intolerant. So you reject the plan. Wouldn't it make more sense to assess whether the plan itself works, whether it's been medically demonstrated to be correct? If it passes that test, perhaps you could reassess what it says about carbs. I realize that's a pretty weak analogy because there's a significant difference between carbs and people, though I believe people are filled with carbs. <laughs> I certainly am. But let's play with the principle itself, the, namely the supreme importance we give to tolerance. Because now, more than ever, tolerance is a cardinal virtue. The problem is, is it's being defined in a really, really narrow way. And when you push people about what they mean about tolerance, they usually say something along the importance of accepting others. And to that, I would say the Christian faith agrees. But if you push them even further, you find that what they really mean is affirming all ideas, affirming all choices, affirming all lifestyles is equally valid, equally true, and equally right. And now that's where the Christian faith disagrees. And I'll speak personally, I'm not tolerant that way. But I really do, but I really don't think that any of us are. So let's clean up the whole idea or the kind of the definition of how we define tolerance today. The first is, there's three kinds. The first is legal tolerance. That if you're an American, this has to do with your basic First Amendment right to believe what you want to believe. There's nothing in what Jesus says or what the Bible teaches that, go, that goes against such an idea. In fact, the Bible is a great advocate of legal tolerance. The second kind of tolerance is social tolerance. This is accepting someone else as a human being regardless of what they believe, interacting with them with love and exhibiting a relational openness to them as fellow human beings. Guess what? There's nothing in the Christian faith that stands against that either. If Jesus stood for anything, it was this open, loving acceptance of others as people who mattered to God. In fact, there's no greater example of social tolerance than Jesus. Jesus was known for reaching out to those who were rejected, these people who were rejected in his day. These were people who were the prostitutes, the corrupt tax collectors. These were thieves. These were people who he was drawn to, and yet he also shared with them the truth. But socially, there was tolerance. The third kind of tolerance is intellectual tolerance. And this is accepting any and every idea or choice uh, or choice or lifestyle as being equally valid, equally good, equally right, and equally true. And that's where Christians and Christianity draws the line. And I think in truth, we all do. I remember my first time uh, down the Vegas Strip, which if you're judging me for going to Vegas, you need to back up to point number two. <laughs> but I remember walking down the street. It was the first time I'd ever been there on the Strip. I had no, no warning or anything. And, and as my, I was there with my wife, so everybody relax. Uh, but there were people along the sidewalk in shirts that said, girls deliver to your room in 20 minutes or less. They were trying to hand out these little cards that had pictures and phone numbers on them for ex escort services. And there, it was just going on th throughout the, the Vegas Strip. And, and my response to that is I don't embrace that as the optimal expression of God's design for my sexual fulfillment, neither for me nor the women involved. Is that being intolerant? Yes. Yes, it is. 
not socially intolerant, not even legally, depending on what state you're in, but intellectually intolerant. The point is, is that I don't believe that everything is equally right or equally valid. There is right and wrong. There is true and false. There is good and bad. There is smart and dumb. But isn't that kind of where we're all at? Do any of us really believe in intellectual tolerance that all ideas are equally valid and should be treated as such? I don't think so. If someone approached you and said, you know what, I believe the best way for you to have a great online experience is to remove your antivirus protection. And then what I want you to do is I want you to open up every email attachment from people and companies you've never heard of before and download as much free software from websites you've never seen or heard of and definitely respond to the lawyer of that distant cousin that lives in Nigeria who's asking for your social security number and your birth date because he wants to give you a million dollar inheritance. You could say to that person telling you that, you could be easily be tolerant of that person legally, you could be tolerant of that person socially while reasonably being rejecting what he says in how you want to handle your online experience. Intellectually, you don't have to be tolerant of that. See, when we talk about the importance of tolerance, we mean legal, intol- uh, legal tolerance and social tolerance, but not intellectual tolerance. And this is true of lifestyles as well. If the only kind of acceptance that people will accept involves uncritical affirmation, then you're saying the only kind of tolerance you'll accept includes indiscriminate blanket intellectual tolerance. That would mean that any and every lifestyle choice must be affirmed as equally good, equally safe, vibrant, and fulfilling, and holy as the other. If you really believe that, then I, I don't know what to say. Can't we just think of like one lifestyle practice that you would personally reject, not just for you, but for everyone? Gallup does an annual morality poll on American values and beliefs. It tries to determine whether we agree that there is morality and immorality. One of their recent polls came out and there were four things that almost every every American agrees should never be plan A. Okay? First is polygamy, suicide, the cloning of humans, and coming in overwhelmingly at... Um, 90% in agreement having an extramarital affair. There's standards. There's lines. I received an email recently from someone who uh, shared that they would be leaving our church because I had become too political. And I was shocked by that. I picked myself up off the floor because I kind of pride myself in not being political. There's a lot of people in this room would like me to be more political. And I'm, I'm just not unless the Bible addresses it. And I couldn't figure out where that was coming from. Except for then I remembered that I did address a while back a bill that was passed through Congress uh, in, in regard to, uh, I'm gonna, not going to go into the bill, but what happened Essentially, the reason why I said something was because now what's happening in our country is we are trying to, they're trying to make legal intellectual tolerance. So what I mean by that is we can't think differently than what they think, whoever they is. That if you think differently, then now all of a sudden it's illegal. And I got a big problem with that. I have a big problem. Yeah, I mean, listen, you should have a big problem. If you're in the room and you're not clapping, you should have a problem with that. And it has nothing to do with any of the things in that. It's just there's an intellectual tolerance that's been perpetuated in this society that's saying if you think differently than us, then you're wrong. And that's not good. We should all, because it's a slippery slope. I'm telling you, it is a slippery slope. We walk, friends, a very fine line, but it's an important line. As most of us do on any number of lifestyle issues in relation to the people that we love, that we know, that are in our life, 
We are involved in their life from the legal tolerance, the relational tolerance, and the intellectual tolerance, but we have to draw lines. It's a line that's bathed in both grace and truth, but there are lines. But if that's your problem with Christianity, I would just say don't reject it because there are lines or even because you don't like the lines. Reject it because you've determined that the Christian faith isn't true. That Jesus was who he said he was. That if you don't believe that, that's why you reject the Christian faith. Or you've determined that the Christian faith is true. And that he is who he said he was. And that there is a God. And that is the God of the Bible. In other words, start off finding truth instead of finding affirmation for things that you want to be affirmed. If you think you're smarter than that, don't, don't you want to start with the truth? Don't you want to start with the one who's making the lines? That's where you want to start. You can determine what the lines mean for your life, which means this isn't about intolerance, much less legalism, judgmentalism, hypocrisy. The real issue here is Jesus. Do you believe that he is who he said he was or he wasn't? There's lines that can be drawn that all of us are bound by or there aren't. I think it's pretty important to figure that out before we start judging other people. And listen, I'll just close with saying this. As the church, and I'm saying the big C church, I, I hope it's not our church, but the Big C Church hasn't done a great job in being very tolerant legally, even socially, certainly not socially, for different lifestyles, for different people. We haven't been very loving and caring and gracious. And I say that not as some sort of condemnation, but really hopefully as some sort of conviction to say, just because you accept somebody doesn't mean you affirm it. Those are two different conversations. We could be loving and accepting. We can connect people to real love, real life who are in our life circle. We can have relationship with people and not necessarily affirm. Listen, I love you guys. This is a hard topic. But I believe that Jesus, while he was on this earth, loved, cared, accepted people but then didn't affirm sin and spoke the truth in grace. Let's pray.